I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'm taking this time to ask you during the month of December to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support us this holiday season. This is the only time of the year when I make this request, so I'm adding something. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate someone else to receive all the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started, and thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 17th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The murder of U.S. journalist Jamal Khashoggi may well have been the last straw as the U.S. Senate moved to begin the process of withdrawing assistance for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. The Cato Institute's SpyCon last week, I spoke with journalist Spencer Ackerman about the role of journalists in these fraught times and how risky good journalism can sometimes be. The ability of governments to surveil and the ability of uh, individuals to encrypt communications are both uh, greater than ever. Uh, so how has this technology really changed how people do uh, what, what we could term sensitive journalism? It's given people, particularly those uh, who might be willing to talk to reporters without authorization, a greater understanding of what their vulnerabilities might be and uh, an understanding of either some workarounds or some uh, options available to limit their exposure. Um, without talking about any specific measures, uh, it's been really interesting to see how in the years since um, mass surveillance, thanks to the Edward Snowden disclosures, became um, at the fore of discussions about technological advances. Um, interesting to see how, uh, companies emerged recognizing that there was in fact a demand for this, um, some from, from, uh, more niche marketplace, um, but now, uh, more broadly, um, even though it's, it's not, um, reached a point where we're seeing major tech firms unleash new products with privacy protections kind of baked in. So basically, uh, people now have a greater understanding of what they might need to do in order to have a, a communication with a reporter that's more sensitive um, than, you know, might be considered, you know, typically prudent, but also what they would have to do to secure that from all but most, you know, the dedicated attacker, um, that being, you know, a state power. Given uh, sort of the the line you hear from uh, the White House with respect to uh, fake news, and there are, seem to be a lot of people who've tuned out mainstream news almost entirely, is that more uh, concerning? Uh, is this a, a more concerning time period re relatively with respect to uh, journalists being able to conduct, do their work uh, without undue government influence? So sort of two uh, baskets of issues presented there. Um, in terms of uh, the kind of fake news bandwagon, um, I, I don't really see that being uh, yet uh, a hindrance to, you know, thoroughgoing, responsible, rigorous journalism, um, because you can, you know, you, you have ways of demonstrating 
uh, to to a reader that what you're what you're doing um, is essentially telling a true story. Um, oftentimes, document acquisition uh, helps with this. And then, you know, on the flip side, the accusation is is you know inseparable from uh, a, a kind of will to power. And so a lot of people who are willing to toss out the fake news accusation um, more or less pr uh, profligately aren't going to be convinced by by anything that you do. Um, subjects of journalism like this know very well that it's very real journalism. I'll say that. And on that note, uh, have sources had a greater difficulty in coming forward? I remember that uh, George W. Bush's administration was pretty rough on leakers. Uh, the Obama administration, if I understand it, was even more stringent. How have things been in the last, oh, two years or so? Well, you're right in that description. Um, as long, I've only been um, reporting on, on national security issues um, for the past you know, 15 years. So those are the only three administrations that, that I've been around to cover. Um, things just sort of generally seem to uh, to get to get worse in terms of uh, a national political atmosphere uh, towards investigative journalism. Um, there was particularly in, during the uh, 2016 transition going into 2017 um, and still into 2018 though I think it, it kind of trailed off a bit, extreme paranoia um, from those within the government. Uh, particularly non-political sources about their exposure and talking to to journalists. You will, of course, have noticed that there has been no shortage of investigative journalism uh, throughout the Trump administration. That uh, I think journalism on a national level has gotten uh, less euphemistic uh, and and really more aggressive. Um, so we can clearly see from from the effects without talking about any specific examples or specific cases or even uh, specific agencies, that there's no shortage of people who want uh, to aid in revealing uh, to the public what their government is doing. You recently wrote about uh, the Senate's vote uh, on the war in Yemen. And, uh, you know, Bernie, you quote Bernie Sanders here saying that uh, members of Congress passed the War Powers Act because they understood that the constitutional responsibility for war, war had slipped away from Congress and into the hands of the White House. And they said that's wrong, but it's taken us 45 years to finally act on the legislation in a positive way and to pass a resolution which ends U.S. participation in an unconstitutional war. Uh, that's uh, Bernie Sanders talking to the Daily Beast. What do you view as what has essentially changed in this moment, given, uh, you know, people, reporters like uh, Jamal Khashoggi uh, being executed very likely uh, at the direction of uh, Saudi Arabia? What's uh, did his death really trigger this? Khashoggi's murder uh, was a signal event. I would view it more um, from everyone I talked to as uh, a kind of, you know, crack that ultimately burst the dam. Um, that in itself conceals the accumulation of pressure uh, that 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 leads to the the actual um, crack bursting the dam. The alarm is really palpable um, in in the sense that Mohammed bin Salman, unlike anything we've seen from this impossibly unfathomably wealthy and powerful family that controls uh, this 
rather resource intensive, uh, wealthy and regionally influential nation. Um, this is someone who can stick around for 40, 50, you know, years, possibly longer in control of this country. And you've watched over the past, um, several years of his rise, uh, seeing the crown prince, uh, seize power and then seeing what he does with that power. Um, it's easy to forget that before he was crown prince, he was defense minister of Saudi Arabia. And so is the architect of one of the world's most devastating conflicts. Um, and the outrage in the Senate really was rather marginal, um, with the exception of, you know, really, you know, significant figures like, you know, Bernie Sanders, Mike Lee, Chris Murphy, um, who really did ask about, you know, the outbreak of cholera in Yemen, uh, the devastating blockade of the port of Hodeida, um, and, and et cetera. What happened with Khashoggi was that Mohammed bin Salman, who, you know, saw as the lesson of him sidling up to the Trump administration, neutralizing the Obama administration, which was on its back foot towards Saudi Arabia because of Saudi's opposition to the Iran deal, that he could get away with all of this because the the scene in Yemen was so grotesque as to be, you know, practically invisible uh, through how just um, astonishingly bloody and, and pitiless that it was. Whereas with Jamal Khashoggi, um, the, the egregiousness of, of this, of this execution, uh, and the, the ways in which the lies that the, the Saudi Royal family constructed around it fell apart so rapidly, all conspire to form a watershed event. Um, something that we noticed as we were reporting ahead of the the resolution passing procedurally um, on November 28th and then uh, passing the full Senate on December 13th was that there were all number of administration tied Republicans and uh, some more hawkish Democrats who didn't want really to be put in the position of opposing the Pentagon's position that because refueling is a logistics activity, it doesn't rise to the threshold of being something the War Powers Act, the War Powers Resolution can speak to. The fact of the matter is, 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 is they were sort of looking for an opportunity to jump off uh, the ship of this resolution and were almost imploring the Trump administration to give them something um, to express their dissatisfaction with bin Salman and with Saudi Arabia over the Khashoggi murder, and the administration just didn't. So if there's, you know, in a sick way, something of a silver lining for Mohammed bin Salman in this, it's that, you know, from Foggy Bottom to the Pentagon to the White House, the Trump administration is not even remotely giving up on him. Um, you've seen the Secretary of State wave the uh, wave the the Iranian flag to say that, you know, whatever. Mohammed bin Salman did or didn't do, you know, the issue is is Iran. And if the US pulls out of uh, the, the Saudi-led coalition, then it's going to be, you know, Iran, Iran, Iran running, running rampant. Um, and that just didn't work this time around. Um, so it's, you know, it's not to be forgotten that this was uh, a blunder, you know, on the White House's part as much as this was um, 
and an aggravation on legislators' part uh, with with the principle of of asserting control through the War Powers Act over um, you know a drift in 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 war making authority toward the executive. Uh, it's somewhat hard to disentangle all of these things. As Congress turns over, uh, some members of the Senate won't be there, uh, notably uh, Jeff Flake, who supported this uh, resolution in the Senate. Uh, Nancy Pelosi it will lead the House, and she has promised that this uh, uh, resolution that is nearly identical will pass the House uh, sometime in 2019. Um, is there likely, do you expect then to be there be more pressure on the White House not to be so buddy-buddy with Saudi Arabia? The pressure will definitely be there. Um, this just hasn't happened in the history of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and it, as you point out, hasn't happened uh, since the 1973 passage of the War Powers Resolution. Um, the pressure is going to be there. I don't know how that you know shapes up you know in a more Republican Senate. Um, remember, since you know Congress is about to fully turn over, as you mentioned, uh, this thing kind of goes back to to square one. Uh, in a formal legislative sense, um, not so much in terms of uh, extant public outrage and pressure. Um, the the kind of more lasting legacy of what the Senate did on Thursday the 13th um, might be that it demonstrated that there is no constituency uh, in the U.S. legislature um, of, of any real size or scope for the Yemen war. Um, that is already, uh, I think, fair to say, uh, putting pressure on negotiations uh, that will seek to go next month in Stockholm from a ceasefire amongst combatants to a political process to wind down the war. Um, but, you know, the the administration has been pushed back over the last several months again and again here. Um, you'll recall that uh, the Pentagon, as a kind of fallback position, surely with the momentum for this resolution, thanks to the Khashoggi murder um, generating outrage in mind, stopped refueling operations for Saudi warplanes. Now, there's still the provision of weaponry and there's still uh, intelligence being provided to the coalition. So by no means is the U.S. out of this of this conflict. Um, yet the administration, particularly in its operational elements, seems to recognize that they're, you know, not operating with time on their side. Um, what we don't yet know is, is how Mohammed bin Salman responds to this. Um, you know, you saw him at the G20, you know, getting lavishly uh, dapped up by Vladimir Putin. Um, the administration here in the United States uh, wants to do as much as it can to avoid, you know, putting pressure on him um, while, you know, going along with the line that, you know, this was, this was done at a lower level and, uh, they'll place sanctions on, on people who they, they, they have reason to believe were involved here. Um, so it's, it's really, um, a circumstance in which the administration sort of will try and get away with as much as it can on supporting, uh, it's, it's, it's favorite, you know, Saudi Royal. Um, and the more that happens, as we've seen over the last several weeks, the more opposition that stirs, the more opposition that provokes, and the more power that opposition accumulates by virtue of the fact of, of how egregious this, this murder was. Um, from a, a journalistic perspective, from the perspective of a journalist, um, 
you know, one thing that uh, seems worth mentioning is that it's yet another reminder uh, that while, you know, Khashoggi's murder happened in another country uh, at the behest of, of a third government um, and Turkey by, you know, by no stretch of the imagination uh, is, is, a, is a positive case, particularly for press freedom. It absolutely is not. Um, it's, I think, brought home uh, to a lot of journalists in the United States that uh, a greater degree of solidarity, perhaps, uh, with our international colleagues is really warranted and that press freedoms internationally and press freedoms domestically um, have to be treated as, as one and the same thing in an era of rising authoritarianism. Spencer Ackerman is a reporter at The Daily Beast. We spoke during the Cato Institute's SpyCon last week. 2018 is almost over, and I'd like to ask you to consider supporting the Cato podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by joining our podcast sponsor program. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more of the benefits of sponsorship. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor.